Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Happy April. Hello. Happy April, which at the time of recording is tomorrow because it's the 31st of March, which means happy anniversary. Of course. You you forgot our anniversary. I was just waiting to see if you remember. Seven years ago today, Ed. Wow. The first time ever I saw your face. I mean, I'd seen it on the TV and uh, I'd been to a function. Comes around quicker every year. What is seven years? What is it got a name? Paper. We, we should look it up. Hang on. Gold. Or... Hang on. It's not gold, clearly. <laughs> Let's have a look at this. Uh, I'm just Googling it now. So seven years is wool. Mm, I like a good bit of wool. Yeah, well, you sent me a pullover last year, so you got ahead of yourself. Yeah. Happy wool anniversary. Yes, I went back in my phone. I've never done this before. Oh, my Lord. But I searched in oh, my Lord. messages for... Because this is the anniversary of uh, when, yeah. when I interviewed Ed on the radio in the run-up to the 2015 election, uh, in which Ed, Ed was a, a candidate, actually, for he was leading one of the parties at the time. So I, I have looked back to find the text message correspondence between me and my then-producer, Gareth. Oh, yeah. So I can read you a, a couple of messages from that exchange. Oh, go on then, yeah. This, this was sent the day before at half-past three. Uh, this is from Gareth, who says... Snooker players are not really wanting to get involved. Managed to get a couple of direct numbers. Steve Davis is a member of the Tory party, apparently. Do you think it's best avoiding him for that reason? <laughs> then he gets a green light from Jeffrey Boycott at some point. Yeah. Uh, but he adds, still waiting to hear back from Banana Armour and Rick Astley. I have no memory of what we were thinking that either Rick Astley or Banana Armour might ask you. Well, obviously, I was the founding member of Banana Armour, so... <laughs> Maybe that would be the reason. <laughs> so there's a little insight into the uh, into the conversations that were happening at my end. And did you have a uh, a thing afterwards? Um, I didn't find anything in the way of a debrief, but yeah. I did find actually um, somebody had sent me some tweets after the interview was broadcast. And you know the political journalist Robert Hutton. Yes, Rob Hutton. Yeah, he tweeted the kind of interview that can destroy a politician or change how you see them. And I think it, you know, possibly did destroy you to to some extent. I mean, look at you now yes. here on this podcast with me. Indeed. Oh well, that's a, well. Thank you for remembering the anniversary. I'll be honest; it came up just before we were about to start recording. It came up on Facebook. Oh right. Well, that is that is very striking. Yes. Um, well, I feel it's good we've got to April. What you and me, or everyone? Everyone. Yes. Don't yes. you think? We are definitely in spring now. Yeah. Have you been getting out and about much? Uh, so that's like something you say to, say to somebody in the autumn of their years, isn't it? Have I been getting out and about much? Uh, I've been getting out and about a little bit. I haven't been back. I haven't been back to the 
pictures. Oh, you should go and see that film, Worst Person in the World, oh, the yes. Norwegian film yes, that was nominated yes. for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars, which I saw this week and I very much enjoyed it. took me a while, but by the last third or last quarter, I thought, oh, this is, this is quite brilliant. That's a five-star Jeff recommendation. I mean, I do continue to urge you to be to offer a bespoke entertainment recommendation service because i texted you during the week to say help what do we watch it was very last minute it, it was, was totally last minute we have a spare hour what can we watch I know. and i was in the middle of recording a drift at the time i'm sorry well you did pretty well you gave me two you you did give me two recommendations i'm not that confident in them though I there's a little bit of a dearth i mean i'm quite enjoying although it's countercultural now i'm quite enjoying killing eve Series four. Oh, so you've broken through to the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And particularly after we interviewed the brilliant Fiona Shaw. Mm. But I mean, there can't be a dearth of good telly. There must be just lots of it around, surely. There's so much of it. I'll, I'll keep digging. I'll have something ready for the next time you text. Well, we've just got too many constraints on what we want to see, haven't we? Not too violent, not about politics, not about the law. We kind of rule out quite a lot don't we yes i think actually miss marple might be the answer for me actually <laughs> i do like a good miss marple so uh should we talk about what we're talking about yeah so this week we're going behind the headlines on the so-called great resignation which is seeing record numbers of job vacancies as people leave and move roles we're going to be comparing our situation to the united states and finding out whether the remote revolution from COVID has benefited everyone equally, and what changes to how we work will be permanent. To dig into the data, we are joined by Joe Fuller from the Harvard Business School, David Zentleman-Rowe from the University of Essex, and Abigail Adams-Prassel from the University of Oxford. So, what's your reason to be cheerful? I went to a gig. Mm. It was near you, actually. I thought about knocking on for you on the uh, on the yeah. way there. It was at the Kentish Town Forum in London. Oh, yeah. And it was Self Esteem, who you might remember, joined us on our Abbey Road episode, Rebecca Taylor. Yes. Who used to be in a band called Slow Club. I've loved her for years. And then last year, she had uh, phenomenal success. She was named as Album of the Year in a bunch of broadsheet newspapers and After music. After appearing on our podcast. Yeah, it's all, all down to us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do remember, Rebecca, at the time she was on our podcast, tweeting a photograph, which was you and her together, and she'd managed to crop me out of it, which I took umbrage at, and yet still had the good grace to go to her concert. And it, it was just fever pitch. I don't know if it was people are still getting used to being out and about. I don't know if it was the amount of momentum she's had or that she's just a brilliant performer, which she is, but it was incredible very high octane people were going wild for it and best of all sarah and i were sat down i was worried we might have to be standing for the whole thing and we managed to find somewhere to sit on the balcony was it very loud yes yeah very much so yeah and you don't mind that no i've, I've not quite got i am at the stage where i like to be seated but i'm not at the stage where i wish they'd turn it down a bit i've definitely reached that stage you know i mean maybe it's just at parties that i find loud music difficult I think I might be playing Glasto, by the way. Really? Yeah. In what capacity? Well, I think in the context of talking about the climate crisis, but uh, not exactly. It's not the sort of you know main stage Saturday night. You know. No, but if there are any bands who listen to this who are looking for maybe to, Ed to come on and do a bit, I don't know, like dancing and maracas, like Bez from the Happy Mondays. Maybe. Would you be up for it? Sam Fender. Maybe is the way only way I'm going to get like Sam Fender on the podcast <laughs> is sort of rush the stage and. Do a quick interview with him. 
yeah, well, that's a good reason to be cheerful. Yeah. So, uh, so what's yours? Well, this was sort of prefigured in an episode, I think, a week or two ago. And, of course, I'm sure you'll be fascinated to hear this. Well, I have more or less dispensed with the swimming hat because we got, we've got, we got into double figures in the ponds. So it didn't feel good to unleash your flowing locks. Yeah, it was good actually. Like Samson, no, it, was, it was sunny, and it was it was even that brief, brief warm period. I thought, right, spring is here. We can get rid of the hat. Does any part of you ever just think, oh, I wish it'd freeze so I don't have to get in today? No, I have looked at the water temperatures back to 2012, and I think the fact that I've never I haven't swum in anything much below four, maybe it was 3.7 one day. I think historically that's kind of that's a bit warmer than it's been. Mm. I haven't had a one or a two that I've had to experience. It's going to be like swimming in a slushy, swimming in one or two, isn't it? Do you it? think what well, it might be frozen? No, but would it start to? Maybe. You know, like when you've got too much stuff in your fridge. Well, like the frozen lettuce. Yeah, yeah. It's a frozen lettuce syndrome, yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, I just wanted to sort of humble brag my own that i've sort of more or less got through the through the year through the winter well hats off literally you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd i'm delighted to say we're joined by joe fuller who is professor of management practice at the harvard business school joe thanks so much for joining us the the great resignation was a term originally coined in the u.s and we've seen headlines about people quitting their jobs in record numbers. Tell us about the picture from your vantage point and whether it is slightly more nuanced than maybe some of the headlines suggest. Well, Ed, I'm delighted to be with you. And it is a more complex phenomena than uh, many news reports or, or vignettes about the Great Resignation suggests. The first paradox when we talk about a Great Resignation, in the US at least, we, we've seen a declining unemployment rate. So it's not that people are resigning, heading off to the country to find themselves or just going home to live on benefits. They are, in fact, going on to a different job. We looked at the the composition of churn in the workforce. And the first thing we noticed, which was uh, quite curious and quite interesting, is actually there had been a steadily increasing resignation rate in the United States for the last 12 years. The other big factor is that this has been a pandemic that's driven a higher retirement rate. After uh, the Great Recession in 2008-2009, workforce participation by workers over the age of 55 actually increased by two-tenths of a percentage point. In COVID, it's declined by almost two percentage points. And we hear two percentage points doesn't seem all that much, you know, just a little bit of a down dip. Well, that's a very precipitous decline for a index like labor force participation over a two-year period. But there are many moving parts to this. It's not as simple as, as people just getting fed up with their work and quitting. And what about this, the 12-year trend? It's very interesting that you say it's a longer-term trend. What is the explanation for that? Well, I think it's several things. The first is I think that it's actually never been easier for someone to find positions to to jump to or to be found by an employer that's looking for someone with your skills background. So the automation of the job search and the candidate search process by 
aspiring worker and by employer has made people much more confident that they have a much uh, higher degree of certainty that if they start looking for a job, they can find another position. And that also has conditioned people to keep looking for a better offer, for lack of a better term. Is there anything in the idea that COVID has changed the nature of the relationship between employers and their workforce? If you think about, I don't know, the measures that the government put in place to make sure that jobs were secure through lockdowns and the pandemic, whether that has changed expectations on workers' parts, on things like sick pay or maybe paid leave or working hours or all of those things. Is there any evidence to support that idea? I think there is, Jeff. We call that the great reconsideration as opposed to the great resignation, where people have been reflecting on the role of work in their lives. And I think that what COVID did was introduce a new theme in the relationship between employers and employees. And this is more, admittedly, more toward white-collar workers, higher-skilled workers, and the to essential workers, frontline workers, as we call them in the United States. But at the beginning of COVID, all employers of virtually every size and every industry said the same thing, a completely unambiguous message, which was the, the health and well-being of their employees was their non-negotiable paramount concern. They didn't say during the great pandemic. They just said the well-being of our employees, their health is absolutely fundamental to what we do. And what what responsible employer wouldn't say that and, and wouldn't feel it and, and wouldn't mean it? Uh, absolutely. But you can't walk that back. It's still imprinted on employees that my well-being is actually a legitimate topic of conversation and negotiation with my employer. And we're seeing that in some rather almost comical episodes in the United States where we have very famous CEOs. I'll spare them their blushes on this, but th- that that have said, well, we're going back to work. And, and by the way, we'll pay for Uber or Uh, Other transport, if you're worried about taking mass transit, for example, if you live in Manhattan, and 14, 15, 18% of the workers actually responded. At the same time, by the way, that basketball games and football stadiums are packed with with people cheek to jowl. So it's not as if that non-attendance, that that truancy is is a function of anxiety necessarily about I might go and get ill. It's it's a it's an act of volition. I'm if I don't have to come in given my estimation of the risk and the necessity of being on premise to do my job effectively, I'm just not going to. And I'm not going to come in. And what are you going to do about it? Fire all of us? It's almost mass civil disobedience in some of these companies. So the balance of power has changed is what you're saying. Yes. The balance of power is changing, Ed, for, for several reasons simultaneously. Some that predate COVID. The first is the workforce in the United States is effectively accepting for immigration, absolutely stagnant. So you have, there are fewer candidates. The skills requirements, once again, particularly at higher income levels, but not exclusively at higher income levels of a lot of jobs, keep 
increasing at a at a higher and higher rate. Why? We have uh, you know significant intrusion of technology into jobs. So you the likelihood that you've got an absolute number of workers with the right skills who are able to see what the market for their skills is, what the pay packs on offer are, and uh, what's available to them using uh, jobs platforms like an Indeed. That combination allows workers, particularly in the top quartile of the earnings distribution, to say, well, I have a lot of choices. I can access those choices. My skills are actually in demand. It feels interesting that this is change that in the past might have come about through collective bargaining, trade unions, workers' rights movements. Does it say something about the age we're moving into? If we go back to the roots of unionization, certainly in the United States, the issues that were being addressed were fundamental ones like workplace safety and the adequacy of wages to live, uh, support a family, not to live in some kind of style or comfort, but to live at all. And through the gradual layering of regulatory intervention, gradually mooted most of the fundamental reasons why union was necessary, at least at, at their birth. But what was lacking is the power of the collective to negotiate on behalf of workers particularly on economics. Now, I'm not saying that a worker's utopia is about to break out in the United States and everyone's going to enjoy very high earnings and whatnot, but it, it, the, the balance has shifted because the flow of information is better, because expectations of workers have been changed very consistently over time, and because employers are acutely aware of their reputations. I think the other big thing, Jeff, is this is the age of Instagram. This is the age of Facebook. This is the age of Pinterest. And an individual workers or even a small group of workers' ability to wreak a bit of havoc on their employer and to, to inflict some real harm on an employer's reputation, standing for having uh, decent business ethics, their ability to undermine the purported moral purpose of any individual enterprise has been greatly heightened. So that balance of power is changing for lots of different reasons, but it has tipped a bit toward the employee. You sort of mentioned workers in the upper quartile, but you said this is a sort of general trend. Talk to us a little bit about if you're a low-paid worker in the US and, and how this plays out. Well, this is something I've researched quite a bit, at, and uh, over 40% of workers in the United States are can be correctly described as low-wage workers. And we have two large concentrations of workers at each end of a distribution and a gradual hollowing out of the space in between. So now let's come to the essence of your question. Do those lower-wage workers have a lot of negotiating power? Uh, no. And of course, that's also a population where when we have immigrants to the United States, legal or illegal, they tend to gravitate actually lower echelons of that job distribution. The thing that is most perilous for people in that group is that there are very few avenues out of it, out of that end of the distribution. It requires additional education or training, and the training regime in the United States is not very conducive to taking a working adult and upskilling them in a way they can get to a higher level job. 
And similarly, as is the case in the UK, almost all larger companies use forms of uh, artificial intelligence to evaluate applicants for a position. And even though we call it artificial intelligence, it's actually not very discerning. It's not very intelligent. So when you describe your work history and it shows that you've been, for example, a part-time worker in food service for the last eight years, what does the AI conclude? You're ideally suited, congratulations, for part-time work in food service. But if you say, well, I really want to, uh, I want to be considered for an entry-level product management job at a consumer products company, it says, well, you've never had that job before. I did a study of the UK, Germany, and the US on this. And what you find is that all in, across all three, employers have a almost manic obsession with making the hiring and recruiting process as efficient as possible. And it's usually about 2 to 3% of candidates that are actually considered by a human being. 98, 97% that aren't are never told, well, Jeff, this is why we didn't consider you. Well, Ed, if you only had this qualification, or you only had this certificate, if, if you'd only mentioned something you've actually done, you just didn't think to put it in your application, you would have been considered. If AI had been responsible, Jeff, for finding you a podcast co-host, I would never have... No, no. For, former leader of the Labour Party is not considered a credential for podcasting. Exactly. It would have ruled me out. We need AI to get more eye. Yeah. Is, uh, is, yes. That's the thing with that one. Just quickly, Joe, can we ask you about the role of government in context of the, the great resignation and the, the great reconsideration and the issues that we've talked about? Do you want to tell us a little bit about what response has been like and what government could do better on this? Well, that's a very rich topic. The government of the United States went for income maintenance, not for employment maintenance, which I think was a major misstep. I think, for example, the approach taken in the UK and some of your European neighbors was ultimately the better scheme. But those supports and the general scheme of benefits in the United States is very much directed toward providing kind of, uh, base level support, not toward providing people clear avenues out of the need for being supported. We have a very inadequate system of compensated work-based learning for young people, people in education or early training, like the apprenticeship programs in, in countries like, I'm, I'm fond of the Danish system, but we don't have uh, anything like that in the United States, uh, a stunted apprenticeship scheme. We don't have uh, coherent approaches to upskilling incumbent workers. We don't have things like you have in the UK with a wage levy for training so that employers don't really have an incentive to invest in upskilling their workers. Employers are very nervous about in investing in the skills of workers, particularly lower wage workers, because they think they're going to leave once, I'm, once I've been upskilled. The perverse thing is workers in high turnover positions in the United States leave because they don't see any prospects for advancement. So let's go back to our AI story. Once they start job hopping between one low-page job to another, how does that look to the AI? It looks like they are a job hopper 
qualified for low-wage work, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're fans of optimism, Joe, on the show, as our title suggests. Where do you come out on where we are as we emerge from COVID in relation to the labour market? Do you feel sort of optimistic about the trend that's been called the Great Resignation, maybe wrongly? What's your sense? Well, I think that employers in the United States, for a number of reasons, are beginning to understand that they've created a labor market that perversely often does not work in their best interest. You see 50, 60, 70% annual churn turnover in the workforce. That is bloody expensive. But employers don't view it as a, a cost that they're inflicting on themselves. They view it as some kind of judgment of God. The good news is as the cost of various technologies falls, that allows more jobs actually to create more productivity because it's a complement of the worker, the human being, and technology. But that growth of efficiency means you need fewer humans to do the work of the company. So where do I net out on this? I think we're going to see some increase in the capacity of those lower wage workers, particularly those who have employers who start investing and upskilling them, which we can see at companies like Walmart, Amazon, historically felt to be miscreants that didn't want to invest in their workers and were, were you know grinding them down. Those companies have, as we'd say it, Harvard run the numbers now and figured out if I can take that my warehouse turnover from 100% a year to 50% a year, I'm more productive and I make more money and I have happier workers. The other thing that's going to happen is we are going to have more workers available for new business models. So um, it's a it's going to be a mixed bag. People with skills are going to enjoy a market. Employers are going to have to create more people with skills because there aren't enough available. And I'm hoping that they'll do two things, which is look at their own lower skilled workforce as a resource that can be invested and upgraded in, and especially to advance a goal that is very widely discussed in the United States, and I think sincerely adopted by most large companies, which is to improve our performance on diversity substantially. Lower wage workers tend to be people of color. They tend to be women. And as employers scramble to demonstrate to their own employees, to their boards, to their shareholders, their customers, all seen through social media, they're actually making progress on economic empowerment by race, more elevation of women into higher paying jobs and management, that they'll look at that that very diverse pool of lower wage workers they already employ as the catchment that they should be looking into to create that more diverse workforce at higher levels of the page, uh, wage distribution. Well, look, Joe Fuller, Professor of Management Practice at Harvard Business School. It's been fantastic to talk to you. He's been incredibly enlightening for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, we're going to speak now to David Zentler-Monroe, who is a lecturer at the Department of Economics at the University of Essex. David, you've been leading some research looking at labour markets here in the UK. What is the big picture and how have things changed since COVID? So most recently, um, myself and a crack team of colleagues from the Essex have been looking at this, this so-called Great Resignation, which is the large rise in workers quitting their jobs that we've seen over the last year and a half. That's a term that started in the US, again, referring to the large rise in job quits over there. There, I guess there's kind of dangers in assuming what happens in the US also happens in the UK. So we wanted to check that out in a bit more detail. And indeed, in the UK, we've also seen a pretty big rise in job resignations. So there's quite a lot of speculation that this was about workers radically reconsidering their lifestyles and their careers after the pandemic. I guess somewhat predictably as economists, uh, we see it more in terms of good old supply and demand. So on the demand side, we've had a pretty big increase in vacancies, so employers demanding more workers. And on the supply side, the supply of workers has remained a, a bit more subdued for, for a variety of reasons that we can get into. But the net result is essentially that you've got a lot of employers looking to hire relatively few workers. So that's created the opportunities for workers to shop around a bit. And that's exactly what we've seen. To what extent... Did furlough lead to some of this transition? Because there's anecdotal evidence that I've seen, which may be completely wrong, that while people were on furlough, it gave them a chance to sort of think about what do I really want to be doing, gave them different experiences of home life, work life, etc. Is there any truth in that? I'm sure that happened to an extent. I suspect it isn't the main story because we know this rise in resignations has been happening in countries that had no no furlough scheme at right. all. So I think that there's a broader trend happening, which is more about the imbalance between demand and supply. And just to be clear about this, the, the change in demand and supply is because... I mean, on the demand side, um, I think just, just a fair degree of bounce back from the pandemic. So you had a bunch of lockdown measures, they were eased, things bounced back, come roaring back into life. 
On the supply side, I think it's a bit more nuanced. Even that demand side is probably a bit of a simplification. There's been a lot of stimulus as well. But on the supply side, there's probably more nuance where we've seen a rise in, for example, early retirements and a rise amongst older workers and a rise in workers leaving the workforce due to sickness. Um, and also with younger workers, we've seen increased education enrollment. So that temporarily takes young workers out of the labor force. But the net result is, as I say, you have a, a kind of upsurge in, in firms looking for relatively few workers, which gives opportunities to shop around. Are there particular age groups who have been moving roles more than others? And do we know why this is? Right. So, I mean, in general, we know that young workers tend to move jobs more than old workers. So, this is idea that in the start of your career, you shop around for the right job. And then once you found it um, or found something at least that, that works reasonably well, then you tend to stay in a, in a more stable career. I think one kind of you know, optimistic take, and we're here to be cheerful, is that the rise in resignations hasn't just been a thing that applies to the super high skilled or workers in very well paid occupations. We've seen you know rising resignations in, in low wage occupations as well, and in and with workers with relatively low educational levels as well. So it's a pretty broad based phenomenon. What does it typically mean for an economy when there are a lot of job vacancies? So. What we'd expect is A, an increase in wage growth, and B, exactly what we've seen, an increase in job mobility, which is partly what leads to that wage growth. So workers can can find better paid jobs, and if they have another offer from uh, another job, they can potentially use that as leverage with their ex- existing employer. And, and But as I say, there are two nuances there. One, workers haven't been upgrading occupations on the whole, and two, that was starting to tail off even by the end of 2021. And does it matter where the vacancies are? Because we've read about record vacancies within the health service and social care sectors. That doesn't seem like a great place for there to be lots of empty job positions. So, I mean, the risks that, you know, certainly people like the Bank of England will be thinking about are the, the risks to wage pressures. And it's not just policymakers in the bank that are thinking about that, you know, for, for NHS managers dealing with tight budgets, increased wage pressure is a really difficult pressure to manage. So, And also people presumably not getting the care they need because they just aren't the staff. Exactly. You know, I think in a lot, a lot of services, you're, you're hitting real capacity constraints because of staff numbers. Do we have any sense of how this is going to play out? I mean, would we expect this to persist? Would we expect it to to sort of settle down? I think that's a really important question, and it's a tricky one. So I think you have to kind of get into the, the different reasons why you've seen a reduction in labour supply. So, for example, young workers enrolling in education programs, which we saw during the pandemic and we generally see in recessions, that you would expect to be a relatively temporary thing and, and a, a pretty positive thing. And eventually that would unwind as they they re-enter the labour force. It's a different matter when it comes to older workers. It affects different sectors. Going back to earlier questions, so with older workers, that's been a big issue going into early retirement. That's been the big issue for manufacturing, whereas younger workers presents more problems problems for sectors like accommodation and food. With old workers going into retirement, you might expect that to be a bit more sticky. Perhaps big increases in the cost of living might change that calculation, but that's not necessarily a very positive story. I think a decent amount you'd expect to be permanent. And look, David, we have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, where Jeff is the um, sort of benign 
he claims, a sort of ruler, if he were to sort of make you the kind of, um, I don't know, Secretary of State for employment or fulfilling employment, what are the things that government should be doing in response to what we see in the in the labour market? What, what, because, because we're talking about this as a sort of set of happenings rather detached from government. But, I mean, government does have a lot of levers at its disposal. So what levers should they be pulling? What levers would you be pulling if you had carte blanche to do so? So I think the one I'd probably go with, and this relates to some research we did about how workers search for jobs. So we saw in January that the government um, introduced benefit sanctions for workers who um, have been unemployed longer than four weeks if they don't start searching outside of their previous occupation or previous sector. So over the course of the pandemic, they started searching for jobs. They shifted where they were searching in favour of the growing occupations and growing industries. And that's good news. It's showing quite a lot of flexibility. So I think leading with a stick and like benefit sanctions is pretty tough. Um, I'd probably favour more of a focus on assistance with job search because we know that it's not just a question of getting workers to look in the right sectors and occupations. It's also about helping them with their applications and making sure employers are on board because employers have to be willing, if relocation is going to happen, employers have to be willing to hire. So it's not just about forcing workers to apply to the right jobs. It's also about giving them the right skills and qualifications and assistance to get there with the help of employers. Well, look, that's been really an informative conversation. Uh, David Zentler, Munro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Really great fun. Cheers. And for the final part of this conversation, we're joined by Professor in Economics at the University of Oxford, Abby Adams-Prassel. Hello. Hello. Nice to be with you. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. We've been talking about the great resignation and the truth behind the headlines in the United States. Is it actually an expression we can apply to what's happened here in the UK? We've heard about various types of industries experiencing a record number in job vacancies. But is is that an apt description, a great resignation? So I think you're right that the UK labour market is currently pretty tight. So the latest data show this kind of record number of job vacancies and also a record number, like low number of unemployed relative to those vacancies. But does this point to great resignation? So in one area where we do see evidence for this is amongst highly educated older workers. So recent increases in the inactivity rate have been driven by older workers increasingly taking retirement. They had, if you like, a pretty good pandemic. So savings rates for that group increased a lot over the pandemic. And so they've just been able to afford to take um, early retirement. Beyond that, I actually think the evidence in the UK for a great resignation is somewhat weaker. So we have seen over the last year pretty high rates of job-to-job transitions. On top of this, if you think about in service sector organisations, we're actually in a lot of jobs. The number of workers that we might need to sustain the level of economic activity that we had before the pandemic is higher because there are more people off sick more frequently because of social distancing, etc. So for me, the evidence isn't super strong on a great resignation. What it is pointing to, however, is firms really wanting to make sure that they hang on to the good workers that they have as much as they can. We were just uh, talking to Joe and Joe was 
was sort of saying that the trends in the United States actually began before the pandemic. How much are we seeing a continuation of trends that we saw before the pandemic and how much are we seeing a sort of a, a pandemic effect? So when we think about older workers here, I would actually say in the UK, it is more of a pandemic effect. So the recent trends that we've seen in terms of inactivity rates, that's in contrast to what we've seen up until the start of COVID. And when we think about the transition from job to job that we're seeing, which you say has restarted, if you like, as we emerge from COVID, how should we think about this in terms of good or bad for workers and our economy? Great. Well, I think there's like two angles to this. So first is, if you like, some level of kind of turnover and churn, good for workers and also good for our economy. And on the second hand, I think the thing is that a lot of the transitions that we're seeing in the UK economy at the moment, or the worrying ones, is this move from employment into an inactivity. And that definitely isn't a sign um, of a healthy economy. That's a sign of a potential loss, if you like, actually, in the overall amount of kind of skills and number of workers. And why is that happening, do you think? So two things. So with the higher educated workers, um, it's because a lot of them can afford to. What we have seen, the other area we've seen actually quite a few exits is among social care. In the UK, we have a lot of exposure to health risks. We also have poor pay, poor conditions. Over the course of the pandemic, one of the biggest increases, if you like, in the reasons that people have given for moving into inactivity has been long-term sickness. What is the implication of all this on job seekers' ability to ask employers for things like more flexibility and to be better on things like sick pay? Is that something you're seeing that job seekers now have more leverage? So definitely this point that Actually, there aren't that many unemployed workers uh, compared to the number of vacancies. We have this tighter labour market suggests that they, that should give certain types of workers who are in demand more scope to go to their employers and demand, for example, changes in flexibility, changes in working from home, changes in pay. What we've seen is mixed, I'd say. So there has been an increase in earnings, however, not real earnings, because inflation is super high at the moment. So if we think about are the kind of wage increases that workers are currently getting in the UK economy, if we take out, if we strip out bonuses, it looks like actually real earnings are actually falling in the UK economy. When you include bonuses, it looks it's about, you know, it's about 0%. The data, if you like, on flexibility and sick pay, if we look at sick pay in the UK economy, so the UK has one of the least generous statutory sick pay regimes in the OECD, and about 20% of workers had absolutely no recourse to sick pay through their employers either, and those are most likely to be low-paid workers, um, and those actually with most exposure to customers and other workers as part of their job jobs. But something that I always like to stress whenever this term about labour market flexibility comes up to is I hate the word flexibility. We should really be thinking here about control and the control that employers versus workers have to set their own schedules. So a flexible zero hours contract for someone in a warehouse job is very different to a flexible IT kind of professional service job. And that takes us on to precarious workers, gig economy workers and so on. What's been the trend for them since the pandemic? And is there any hope that this tighter labour market that we have might eliminate some of the worst of those precarious conditions that workers face? In terms of uh, zero hours contract workers, 
there have been, if you like, a couple of legal change, like well, reinterpretations, I would say, of employment law in this area, which is bringing more gig economy workers within the scope of UK employment law as Uber drivers now being workers, for example. All of this giving workers more ability to increase their terms. I think it varies a lot across different local labour markets and occupations. So if you've got a labour market which is dominated by a small number of low-wage employers, and what we also see amongst like individuals with not huge amounts of education is actually not so much in terms of their ability to switch occupations and switch jobs into kind of better paying ones. Like typically people are searching in the same kind of the same occupations to how they were before. Um, well, that still then gives actually employers quite a lot of power, not necessarily to to massively increase terms. And there's, there's a gender aspect to this as well. Some work I was doing surveying workers last year would suggest that some of these like novel aspects of the pandemic aren't hugely important, actually, for understanding shifts in people's job search behaviour. So working from home does rank, you know, it's thought to be relatively important and ranked up there about job seekers. But the most important things are better pay and better security. That's slightly different if you look at working mothers. So working mothers are much more likely to place weight on the ability to work from home going forward. I do think there are questions about the degree to which this is an economy and gender equal economy perspective. Is this good or bad kind of going forwards? So on the one hand, um, jobs in the UK in terms of this good flexibility, which is worker led, that has been massively constrained if you look pre-pandemic. So a lot of the flexibility in the UK labour market before was more kind of employer led, I would say, kind of zero hours. And there was a lot of constraints on the degree to which people could work from home and work in a flexible manner. So we're reducing constraints on that. On, on the one aspect, that's great, especially for working mothers, given the inequality and caregiving responsibilities that we have. Working mothers actually do find it harder to be productive when working from home. So they face more uh, interruptions. It takes them longer to do similar types of tasks than men, even though they're doing them equally well. Just because of the fact that you might be working from home doesn't mean that suddenly all this kind of inequality and caregiving restraints suddenly disappears. It sounds to me, Abby, like what you're saying is that many of the problems that we had before the pandemic are just still with us and haven't really fundamentally changed. The insecurity of work for millions of people, issues of pay because of rising numbers of rising inflation and living standards, clearly that's the case. What will endure, do you think, in the world of work as a result of the pandemic? I mean, is working from home more will clearly endure for some people? I mean, is that the main thing that will endure, do you think? I mean, it's all against the background of a tight labour market. I understand that. But is that what's the long term effect, do you think? I have to say, actually, I agree with you, Ed. A lot of the key issues which are coming up in terms of surveys and the dynamics of the labour market, they, they were in place beforehand. If we think about low pay, insecurity, potentially incompetitive low-wage labour markets. And also, if you think about the gender aspect, the fact that we just got massive inequality in caregiving responsibilities compounded by a historic lack of investment in childcare and care more broadly. Perhaps the aspects, as you say, the way we do see it in is this rise of working from home, but that's only available typically to higher wage workers in particular occupations. So it's really quite, if you like, a regressive angle or like policy angle, if that's what you're going to be trying to invest in. 
I think one of the other things which still hasn't fully played out yet is changes in the spatial pattern um, of demand and what that means. So what does all of this mean for the high street? If high wage workers are only not going into the office, even if it's a couple of days a week, in terms of the knock on effects that this has, actually, that can be much larger than what it might look like at the beginning. What is the implication of all this on policymaking then? If if we made you uh, Secretary of State for Employment in the in the Jeffocracy, which is our utopia here on the podcast, what <laughs> what would you do? What sort of dials would you turn? Carte blanche. We got you've got complete freedom, Abby, to do what you like. Jeff's going to be very hands off. He's going to be working from home. He's working from home, sort of. A bit, I think. Is that right, Jeff? Ed, that is a very outdated attitude towards yeah, yeah, working yeah, yeah. from sorry, home. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I will be just many, as productive. How many days a week? How many days a week are you putting in as the head of the Jeff? I will be just as productive. <laughs> you don't need to worry about actual hours. So, given that we've been talking a bit about gender equality in the labour market, um, if I was Chancellor in the Jeffocracy. One thing I would want to fundamentally do is rethink about how we conceive of care within the overall kind of economy. So typically, if you think about economic policy or a kind of infrastructure, public infrastructure, you think about roads, you think about electricity, all of these things. But if actually a huge percentage of our workforce can't go out to work because actually we don't have affordable childcare, we don't have an affordable social care system. I, I just think there is so much room for improvement there, which even when you think about this like kind of health and social care levy, which there has been some change on recently, it's just insufficient. And it's, I think, marginal and a sticking plaster. If we go beyond gender to thinking about low wage and precarious work more broadly. So I'd characterize a lot of policymaking in, in that area. It's collapsed on what's your national minimum wage rate. Now, you know, I'm not saying that that's not important, but actually that gives that's only one aspect of, you know, uh, how we think about jobs and regulating jobs. And it can provide some opportunities for employers to get away from that. So there's been some pretty credible work, I'd say, that one way in which employers can, given this relatively low bargaining power of workers in certain areas, one way that they can, if you like, get around national minimum wage rates is through increasing, for example, utilisation of zero hours contracts. If we look at kind of the EU and how the EU conceives of building up lower wage work, you've got minimum wage rates in addition to collective bargaining and other kind of non-minimum wage rate types of um, interventions, which actually are able to increase the power of low-income workers. Whilst that's not, if you like, <laughs> one thing that the Jeffocracy needs to do, I would say that, um, yeah, moving away from just thinking about minimum wage rates as being this lever for redistribution within labour markets would be a key concern for me. So the role of unions and childcare. Yeah. Jeff, what do you think? Well, I'll, I'll let you check the detail on that, but it sounds good to me. <laughs> that sounds like uh, the Jeffocracy. I was actually amused that Abby was sort of laughing about her being Chancellor in the Jeffocracy as if as if the Jeffocracy was a sort of credible <laughs> idea and her being Chancellor was an incredible idea. I mean, you know, it's very, it's very generous of you, Abby, but I yeah. think it's much more credible for you to be the Chancellor than Jeff to be the Jeffocracy. I'm not entirely sure about that one, but um, no. Well, look, uh, Abby Adams-Prassel, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. Well, that feels like quite an important conversation. I, I feel like that was a partly a sort of demystifying conversation, wasn't it? Because there's obviously the headlines about the great resignation and isn't it great for work? It's at least about the US and maybe a little bit spill over to here. And it's obviously much more complex picture than that. 
Yes, I feel that maybe it's a phrase that I would have dropped into a dinner party conversation had I ever been invited to a dinner party without really understanding it. Have you been invited and agreed to go, I think you should say. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? Um, I I think there's something really interesting. We touched on this with Joe in the 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 balance of power shifting towards employees and job seekers in a way that historically has been as a result of unions, collective bargaining. And there's something interesting in that that correction is just happening, at least in some parts of the job market. It's quite complicated, this, isn't it? Because it's like Mm. the thing I find coming out of this conversation is so much changes and so much stays the same. Yes. (laughs) You know, that there is obviously some changes. We're in a tighter labour market. There's obviously this technology trend that Joe is talking about, although that technology trend is quite double-edged in many ways because it also facilitates insecure work. I mean, it might facilitate easy ability to access work by employees. But I think well, basically I come out thinking, well, there's lots of conflicting trends here. It also feels like the UK is in a different position, I think it's fair to say. I wonder if that's in part because European countries are a bit less of a wild west on some yeah. workers' rights and well, we are uh, we have, you know, pretty wild west aspects. Yes, but maybe not compared to the United States. Maybe not as much as the United States. Mm. Um but I mean I think the other thing you can't ignore in this is who benefits. You know, it's just a very different story for better paid higher income workers than it is for lower paid workers it's just it's just a you know joe's explanation of the what do you call it bell the barbell barbell labor market is really is really sort of uh, important i think fundamentally i don't think it changes the need for proper employment legislation the role of trade unions in a way the pandemic reminds us how important those things are and that the the fight for those goes on. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We are in the outro. I have an email, an exciting email here from Steph Wheeler. It says, It was exciting to hear you briefly talking about fish passes on your latest episode. This was when I was talking about the uh, the fish path at Sluson in Stockholm. Uh, Steph yes. says, I work for the Canal and River Trust on a project called Unlocking the Seven. In the last three years, we have built four huge fish passes um, and the largest one wow. at Diglis near the centre of Worcester has an underwater viewing gallery where visitors can get a glimpse into the river and scientists can monitor fish movements and populations. That is exciting! Well, it gets even more exciting no. because I think you can go online at unlockingthe7.co.uk and I think you can see this fish pass. Is that a webcam? I'm not sure there's an actual webcam. I mean, there should be. I don't mean to tell the uh, Canal and River Trust how to do their job, but I fish think cam. Th- we, we want to see that fish pass, don't we? And um, it's it's very exciting, especially for the uh, Twait Shad, which is a rare and endangered species of herring. Before the construction of weirs during the Industrial Revolution, they used wow. to migrate up the Severn to England, to the uh, England-Wales border. And now for the first time in over 150 years, they're going to be able to reach their historic spawning ground again. A very exciting reason to be cheerful, we think. The herrings are back. The twait shads. Got to be careful with that one. 
Well, that is a really exciting email, and we want to hear from other listeners, don't we? Absolutely. Please do email us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We do read every email, and we always want to hear from you, don't we? We really do. Shall we thank our guests? I would like to thank Joe Fuller, Abby Adams-Prassel, and David Zentler-Munro. Thanks to Emma Corsham, who uh, faithfully produces all the audio for our podcast week in, week out. Thank you, Emma. And to Joe Kenyon from Goldfish, who did all the research and guest booking. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been crowd surfing. He's been swimming the hatless breaststroke. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 